Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. Now, obviously, when we get to the end of the year, I like to do top 10 lists. Uh, it's just something that we do here on Kermode on Film. This has been a particularly strange year. Um, as everybody knows, if you're a film fan, it's been a very, very difficult year for cinema. Cinemas have been closed due to lockdown, and we've had loads and loads of blockbusters that have been delayed. And a lot of people who are huge cinema fans have found that 2020 has been a year notable for its absences, for the absence of movies like Bond, which kept moving back and is now being pushed right back to, I think it's April of uh, 2021. However, there have been a number of really great, interesting, fascinating films that opened in the UK in 2020. Some of them in cinemas, some of them on streaming services. And if we are to accentuate the positive, one of the strange things that's happened this year is that in the absence of many big blockbuster releases, there has been maybe a little bit more attention paid to some movies that otherwise might have got lost in the mix. So what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to look back at my top 10 favourite films of 2020. And I actually think it's a list that could compare with, with any year of cinema. There are so many great films, as always. It's been very hard to uh, to whittle the list down and to actually get it down to my top 10. There's many things in here that I'd love to have included, but uh, you know, but I had to throw them out in order to get them down to 10. So uh, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, have a listen to my list of my top 10 films of uh, 2020. And then let me know what you think, what your favourite films were that you saw this year. As I said, I know this has been a particularly testing and trying year for cinema. But actually, I think that there have been as many, if not more, great movies released this year than in many other years. I certainly look forward to 2021 being a year in which we all get back into the cinema and are able to enjoy the cinema experience in a way that we really haven't been able to this year. But uh, it really hasn't all been bad news. So here is my rundown of my top 10 films of the year. Just a few ground rules. These are films that were released in the UK in 2020. Some of them may have been made or released in uh, other territories uh, last year in uh, 2019. And obviously, once I've finished this, celebrating all that's good about 2020, the next podcast will be my countdown of my worst films uh, of 2020. It's a completely personal list. It's not meant to be definitive. It's not meant to be authoritative. It's just my reflections on, uh, on what have been some of the real standouts uh, for the cinema year 2020 films released in the UK. So sit back, relax, enjoy, disagree, get in touch and uh, here we go. 
so let's kick things off with a release that uh, opened here in the UK in January. Uh, Amanda Iannucci's brilliant personal history of David Copperfield. One of the things I remember most about seeing this film was being surprised by how entertaining it was. I mean, I know that uh, Amanda Iannucci is a brilliant filmmaker, and I knew that he'd uh, taken a, a really progressive attitude toward casting for this version of David Copperfield. What I didn't expect was just how laugh-out-loud funny the film was going to be. There's a real joy, a very special joy, in seeing somebody take a text that's been adapted for screen many times before, that many people will have read before, some at school, some you know just for pleasure, and seeing somebody finding the humour, the absurdity, the modernism, the, uh, the forward-looking quality in that text... Watching Personal History of David Copperfield, not only was I struck by how brilliantly the ensemble cast worked, led by Dev Patel, who I think was really kind of uh, channeling the pathos of Chaplin in uh, in some of his uh, moments, but just how much Yanucci had managed to get to the heart of the story and to find at the heart of that story a narrative about inclusiveness, a narrative that really wanted to involve anybody. It was a kind of film that uh, that had a kind of hail fellow, well met, come hither quality to it. An inclusivity that meant that everybody could watch and enjoy and appreciate this film. It's often been said that, uh, you know, the best kind of cinema is cinema that works across the board. I remember William Friedkin once saying that Critics don't know anything about films. The only people who know anything about films are audiences, and you can only judge a film by how well an audience responds to it. And um, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, as a critic, I'm also an audience member. But it's definitely true that some films really strike you as films that are reaching out to uh, to involve and grab the audience. And I felt that with Personal History of David Copperfield. I felt it was a film that was really working hard to entertain and to enlighten and to invigorate the audience. And I think it did so quite brilliantly. As I said, huge plaudits to uh, Dev Patel, who I've been a huge fan of for years anyway. But both the comedy and the pathos of his performance are right at the heart of the film and make it something magical, something special, something inventive. I mean, there are, there's so much else. I love the score. I love the fact that there are kind of Terry Gilliam-esque moments of invention. I love the fact that it stars um, Morvith Clark in not one but two performances and it's perfectly possible to watch that film without realising that she has those two performances. So it's clever, it's witty, it's intelligent. It's really, it's really great. The fact that it's at number 10 tells you something about just how many great films I think were released in the UK in 2020. I can easily recall people of strong character. Good morning! Good morning. Is it too early for Sherry? A little early. And weave their memory. Come in. Form a queue. Into my life's journey. We're ruined. Like a castle. How can we be ruined? Like a big castle. Heads! We could keep him as a little pet. <laughs> it was a joke, I'm sorry. I've been attempting to learn gentleman's humour from a book. This calls for a celebration. Hooray! This is a remarkable day. Did you hear that? I'm a huge maniac! What an adventure we have had. Oh. On to number nine, and it really wouldn't be a Mark Kermode uh, top ten of the year if we didn't feature an animation at number nine, The Brilliant Wolfwalkers. Um, 
I've been a fan of Cartoon Saloon for many years. I love the way that they have an attitude to animation that is both a love of and respect for the history of animation, but also a very forward-looking attitude in terms of the, the spirit of the films, in terms of the adventurousness of the films, in terms of the artistry of the films. Wolf Walkers is a wonderful story that you can read on so many levels. But the thing that really works for me about Wolf Walkers is that I think it's a film which speaks to different audiences, but with the same voice. It's often been said that the very best uh, animations treat everyone as children. With that line from that song, you know, kids from one to 93. And I think that watching uh, Wolf Walkers, as has been so often the case with uh, Cartoon Saloon's output, I watch the film and I kind of feel like I'm a child again. And that's amazing because I'm an old man who is kind of hitting uh, 60 in the not too distant future. It's lovely to be able to lose yourself in the magic of animation. And I think that Wolf Walkers manages to do that, to transport you, to take you to a different land. And it is a land that combines both fantasy and reality. The story is very much rooted in a real story about fathers and daughters and, and, and you know, uh, division and history. But it uses this fantastical form to tell that story. It's so amazing that uh, animated movies, when you look at the history of the Oscars, for example, still haven't really been given the credit that they deserve. I think that animation is one of the, the highest forms of filmmaking, certainly one of the most adventurous, certainly one that enables filmmakers to explore worlds that uh, live-action filmmaking has possibly not been able to conquer. Anyway, it's lovely to, uh, to have this at number nine of my favourite films released in the UK in 2020, Wolf Walkers. Forest is brimming with wolves. It's my job to hunt them down, not yours. But we could hunt them together. Wolves, bears, dragons even. <laughs> She's one of them wolf walkers. Wolf walkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. We can come out now. We can smell ya, you stick. You're a uh, wolf walker. You're a wolf when you sleep. <gasps> a girl when you're awake. <laughs> Robin, something's happened to me. Yeah, I can see that. It's flipping great. Which brings us to number eight in my rundown of my favourite films released in the UK this year. And uh, this is the first of two saints, St. Francis, which is written by and stars Kelly O'Sullivan. I knew nothing about St. Francis before I saw it. It was one of the films that I saw uh, on streaming services. Uh, it was it opened in the UK, obviously, at a time, as we've said before, when some cinemas were opening, some cinemas were closing. The actual release status of the film was kind of uncertain. And I actually ended up watching it uh, at home. I'd love to have seen it in the cinema, but I ended up watching it at home. But it didn't matter because, like the very best cinema, what it managed to do was 
was to sweep me up in its story. The thing that I love most about St. Francis is that it tells a story which is, on the one hand, very radical. Uh, it deals with subjects which are often considered taboo by mainstream cinema, uh, reproductive rights, um, uh, abortion, menstruation. And yet it deals with them uh, in a way that is so deceptive that you think that what you're watching is simply an empowering, coming-of-age, ditzy, midlife crisis comedy. It deals with really serious subjects in a way that has a real deftness, a real lightness of touch, a real honesty. And I think that particularly at the moment, with everything that's been happening in America, with the attacks on uh, women's rights, with everything that's happened over the last four years of this abominable uh, Trump regime, it is really great to see a movie which uh, talks about subjects that... Uh, some other sections of society would like to be uh, swept under the carpet, but manages to do so, as I said, in the manner of a wonderful midlife crisis comedy that's sweet and charming and uplifting and empowering. And is actually as radical as anything I've seen in the past few years. I know that I go on about this quite a lot here on Kermit on Film, but I, I'm, I'm very aware of the terrible nature of what's happened to American society in the last four years under Donald Trump. And one of the things that we can all look forward to in the next year is Trump leaving the White House, hopefully in disgrace, so even more hopefully in chains and handcuffs. And uh, watching a movie like St. Francis, I think that's why it's... Uh, it's a real indication of everything that he stands for, because it's a film that is about nothing he stands for. It is good and honest and funny and uplifting and self-aware and uh, somehow self-mocking at the same time. All the things that could never be said about the abominable Mango Mussolini. When you were a baby and you screamed and screamed and there was nothing I could do to get you to stop... I'd imagine taking you by the ankles and swinging your little head into the wall over and over until it was a bloody pulp. Oh my God. I don't know that you should tell that story. I'm throwing out the milk, the olives got old. I'm tired of my mind getting heavy with mold. On to number seven, and at number seven, a real collaborative effort. A film that demonstrates that the more people who are involved in the creative process of filmmaking, often the better the film itself is. I'm talking, of course, about Rocks. Rocks is remarkable for a number of reasons. The first one is that it introduced us to a host of screen newcomers, because in order to tell this story about a, a teenager who returns home to discover that their, their mother has abandoned them uh, and their, their younger brother... They basically did workshops uh, around schools and youth groups to recruit the cast, which is wonderful because it meant that we got to see a whole bunch of people on screen that we hadn't seen before. But the most remarkable thing about Rocks was this. Uh, I had spoken to Sarah Gavron, who is the director of Rocks before, and it is a film critic's uh, habit to refer to a film as possessively belonging to the filmmaker. So, for example, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, William Friedkin's The French Connection. Uh, and Sarah Gavron is one of the few filmmakers that I have ever met who specifically went out of her way to request that Rock's was not referred to as her film, that it wasn't referred to as Sarah Gavron's Rock's. 
And the reason that she wanted that to be the case was because she thought that the writing, the the way the film was shot, the uh, the way in which the casting had happened, the incredible young cast themselves, everything about the film was a collective effort, that it was not a film that was produced by the single vision of a, of a sole filmmaker, but instead it was a film that was produced through collective effort. Now, quite a lot of the time, film critics, and I'm guilty of this myself, fall into the habit of praising films which have a singular vision, and the singular vision is that of the director. The whole idea of auteur theory, which is, you know, obviously dates back to the days of Cahiers du Cinema, where it's the great usually male genius filmmaker who envisages the whole film and is responsible for everything that's on screen. This is something that has filtered through film criticism and I have been as guilty of doing it as the next person. In fact, I'm sure that I will continue to do it. I will continue to go on praising singular visionary filmmakers. But what Rocks reminds us is the power of collective endeavour. How much when you allow everybody involved in the filmmaking process to have an equal input into how the film turns out, it can quite often work for the better. We know that there is an idea of films made by committee as being a bad thing, but when people say that, what they really mean is films made with uh, interference from outside, films in which studios or financiers interfere with the vision of the film itself, not when it is part of the organic filmmaking process of the movie. If anybody ever says to me again, oh, well, you know, there's there's nothing like a film just directed by one singular genius auteur, I will simply refer them to rocks. And to the time that Sarah Gavron pointed out to critics in general that she didn't want the film to be referred to as Sarah Gavron's Rocks. It is a film that she directed, but it is a film that is much bigger than her. It is just Rocks, and it happens to be directed by Sarah Gavron, and I happen to love it to pieces. Yo, I'm going to be yeah. the new Picasso. Yeah. These are your clients. Yeah, she's fine. Yeah. 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 Yeah and important political message that, again, doesn't look like that's what it's a film about. I'm talking, of course, about Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, the brilliant film by Eliza Hitman. Now, like St. Francis, this is a film which deals with the issue of reproductive rights, of women's rights, of a woman's right to choose. And I will say again that this is a subject which, as a result of the appalling horrors of the last four years of the Trump administration has been sorely under attack. What never rarely sometimes always does is to manage to address those issues, but to do it in the same way that St. Francis did it through looking like a a ditzy midlife crisis comedy. This is a coming of age road movie. I think that watching never rarely sometimes always, I felt that I was watching a drama, certainly, but a drama that had the, the authenticity of a documentary, certainly in its portrayal of the central friendship between the two characters at the heart of the drama. It's a film which is 
absolutely uh, important and contemporary and urgent in the subjects that it addresses. But those subjects are never able to overpower the fact that the film is, in the end, a character study. It is a portrait of people at a certain time in their lives facing a certain situation that will be well known to many, but is often, again, swept under the carpet and not talked about or, you know, uh, demonised and dealt with in a manner that is so intuitive, so respectful, so poignant, so truthful, that you think that what you're watching is a documentary, even though you understand absolutely that it is a drama. It's a film that's made with honesty and integrity, and is also very touching in a way that oddly reminded me at times of Midnight Cowboy, Midnight Cowboy was famously the first uh, you know, X-rated, uh, Amer- American X-rated feature to win the Oscar for Best Picture. And a very brief, it, it, the reason for that is because of the weird thing about the American rating system. But never really, sometimes always, had something of that same melancholy charm. Certainly in its road movie inflections, certainly in its central relationship between two central characters who don't necessarily say the things that are important. Again, it's an example of show-don't-tell filmmaking, which you know more about characters through what they don't say than what they do say, particularly in the central scene from which the film takes its title, in which it's what's not said that really tells us all we need to know. I'm just not ready to be a mom. Where else could you go? Nowhere in Pennsylvania. I think you should try another place. You going to New York? What are you doing there? Seeing family and stuff. Used to be on the street. Who came with you today? My cousin. Do you have a place to stay tonight? I know you came from far away. I'll figure it out. This area's closed. Do not sleep here. Where's the rest of the money? I want to make sure that you're safe. I know this is hard. ask you some questions they can be really personal just answer either never rarely sometimes or always if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So, we're into the top five, and at five, <laughs> yet another film that addresses an urgent contemporary issue, but does so in the manner of a deeply involving drama. Clemency is a wonderful feature by Chinoy Chukwu, with an incredible central performance by Alfred Woodard as the uh, warden in a prison which has a death penalty facility. Aldous Hodge is the prisoner who is on death row, awaiting execution. And what the film does is it tells a story of Alfred Woodard's character slowly coming to terms with her own disillusionment with the death penalty. Now, clearly, the death penalty has been very much in everybody's minds recently, particularly, and I'm sorry to mention it once again, since Donald Trump seems to have spent the final days of his presidency executing as many people as he possibly can before he is forcibly dragged out of the White House. What clemency does is to look at the way that the death penalty affects everybody whom it touches, not just prisoners, but also those involved in the prison service, in this case particularly the uh, prison warden, the lawyers who are involved in defending and also prosecuting, and the wider world uh, of the public. It paints a portrait of a world in which the death penalty itself is a stain that emanates out and creates ripples throughout society. And again, it does it by telling a very human, very personal, very singular story. But through that singularity, through that personal touch, it universalizes its central issues. And I think what it manages to do is to make us think about what the death penalty actually means without ever seeming preachy or polemical. Heaven knows those are qualities that I have never managed to achieve. I think it's an absolutely brilliant drama with a fantastic score by Catherine Bostick, which really captures the claustrophobia of the prison, but also the uh, the strange changes that are happening to uh, Alfred Willard's character as she attempts to come to terms with what's happened in her life, what's happened in her career, and the profound change that is happening to her as a result of these events. How do you keep doing it? I do my job. These next 24 hours are crucial. 
crucial. Anthony's defense attorney has already asked for a reprieve from the governor's office. You want to blame this good guys and bad guys. And I'm one of the bad guys. I give these men respect. All the way through. share a bed with my wife. How long is this going to be going on? All we want is to be seen and to be heard. It is not over. So on to number four, and a film which had a very personal um, impact for me. I've often thought that it's the case that whenever we watch a film, we bring our own personal baggage to it. I remember William Friedkin famously saying that uh, people who got freaked out by The Exorcist basically had brought all that freakiness with them to the screening. He once said that after the first week of The Exorcist showing, when there had been news reports of people fainting and vomiting and you know running out of the theatre, he said people were scared before they got into the theatre. But he also said that the film gives to you what you bring to it. And I am very conscious of the fact that uh, watching films is a very personal thing. And people bring to the movie things that the movie may either reflect or or amplify or, or deny or chime with or whatever. Well, at number four is Relic, which is a superb uh, feature from uh, Japanese-Australian writer-director Natalie Erica James. And it's a film which deals with the subject of Alzheimer's, which is a very down-to-earth subject and something which I know will have touched many people listening to this podcast. But it uses the language of fantasy to talk about a very real situation. Uh, The best way of describing my reaction to Relic is to say that the film left me completely speechless. Uh, As the film finished, there was a silence. And I, 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 I found myself profoundly moved and shaken by it. And I think the very best horror has at its heart, um, an element of melancholia, an element of sadness. And I think when those two things are combined for me, particularly, they, they work very powerfully. Also, as somebody who has had personal experience of dealing with a very close relative uh, with Alzheimer's, there were things about the film that struck such uh, an authentic chord that absolutely seemed to reflect experiences that I know many people will have gone through. And again, it's a brilliant case of using the language of fantasy to talk about a real subject in the same way that Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth uses a fantastical land juxtaposed with a, inverted commas, real land. I remember Guillermo saying that he always felt there was nothing more real or unreal about either of the worlds of Pan's Labyrinth, that they were both as real as each other. As somebody who grew up watching fantasy and horror films, reading Cine Fantastique, uh, keeping piles of Fangoria magazine under the bed, writing for Fangoria magazine. I've always thought that the horror genre is one of the highest of film genres, but it's at its best when it manages to mingle horror with sadness and eeriness to create that kind of almost uncanny feeling that penetrates right to the very heart of your soul. And that's what Relic did for me. As I said, perhaps the best thing about it is it's a film that left me genuinely speechless. Talking about movies is what I'm meant to do for a living. But after Relic, I really didn't know what to say. 
for quite some time. When was the last time you spoke to her? It's been a few weeks. Gran? Mum? Mum? She called me a few weeks ago. I think she was scared. She thought someone was coming into the house. Which brings us into the top three, and I'll be honest about this. Of these three films, they could have been in any order, one, two, or three, any of them, because they're all stone-cold masterpieces. In fact, even now, looking back at my top ten, I'm thinking I could have changed the order, I could have shifted things around, because as we know, all lists are essentially foolish, so it's best to treat them with a, seri- with a sense of uh, foolhardiness. So at number three, Bong Joon-ho's brilliant Parasite, What is there left to say about Parasite that hasn't already been said? Well, perhaps this. When we were making Secrets of Cinema, the new series of which incidentally starts on BBC4 on January the 11th, please do check it out. We've made three episodes. One of them is on British comedy movies. Uh, One of them is on pop movies, movies that deal with uh, pop music or pop stars or whatever. And one of them is on cult movies. And at the very end of uh, the programme... We end up talking about Parasite. And when this was first suggested to me uh, by Nick Jones, who is the producer of this podcast and uh, one of the producer directors of Secrets of Cinema, we, we started thinking about how Parasite qualified as a cult movie. I mean, this is a film that won the Oscar for Best Picture. This is a film that was internationally acclaimed and incidentally to the annoyance of Donald Trump. Sorry if I've mentioned him before. Um, And we were wondering what qualifies something as a cult movie. And clearly, in order to be a cult movie, you don't have to be a movie that nobody saw. I mean, a cult movie is not a a, a trauma movie or a Sharknado movie or a movie that nobody paid any money to see. A cult movie can be, you know, a great big proper hit. Why is it that Parasite feels like a cult movie? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first of it is that it really caught everybody by surprise. I kept saying before um, the film was released, if you haven't seen this film yet, don't read my review. See the film and then read the review afterwards because I don't want to spoil anything. I did try and write my review without spoiling anything about Parasite other than just the most basic plot setup. And I'm still going to stick to that. If you haven't seen it yet, you know, then please do. But please stop listening to anything else and watch the film first. But also, um, when Jack Howard and I were uh, at a film festival, uh, we were there when Bong Joon-ho unveiled the black and white version of Parasite. This was just before lockdown happened, when it was possible to go to film festivals. And the idea that there was a black and white version of it somehow kind of cemented its cult status. Now, you can like whichever version you like, the colour version or the black and white version. Personally, I I love the colour version, although I was kind of really enchanted by the idea of the black and white version, not least because it seemed to tie the film back into that kind of cult movie ethos that I've always really enjoyed. But I think the most impressive thing about Parasite is that it's a massive international hit that won every award going, and yet it still feels like a film that you discovered for yourself. Okay. 
So we're into the top two, and as I've said, you know, one, two, and three are completely interchangeable. I could have put any of them in any position at any day or even hour. But at number two, and I, I just love it to pieces, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the uh, latest by Celine Siamar, who won the uh, Script Writing Award at Cannes in 2019. Screenplay Award, Script Writing, Writing Award written for the screen, however you say it. Celine Siamar described this film as being, uh, in terms of its philosophy, a manifesto about the female gaze, which is a bold thing for any filmmaker to say about their movie. Not least because describing any film as a manifesto about anything sounds like a, a complete turn-off. It's like the old joke about um, socialist art all being a variation on the theme of boy meets tractor. As we all know, that's completely not true, but that was the great cliche about it, is that somehow any film that has a manifesto or a message what was the thing that the Americans should do? If you, you know, if you want to send a message, then uh, you know, use the mail service. But when Celine Siamar said it, and she said it in a kind of wry and, uh, and very French way, when she said it, what I think she meant was that it was a challenge. It was like a gauntlet thrown down to make a film about the female gaze in an area in which there has been so much written and talked about the male gaze. And yet again, and this is a subject that I've returned to again and again, I'm hearing myself say it and I realise that it's something that must impress me enormously. It doesn't look like that from the outside. When you're there watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire, what you think is this is an incredible romantic adventure about two people in a precarious situation in which their relationship is happening at an enforced distance. It is about the painting of a portrait of somebody who is a reluctant subject and who doesn't want to be painted. And the reason they don't want to be painted is because they don't want to be owned or to be given away. And during the course of the painting of the picture, a relationship grows between the painter and the subject that completely turns all these philosophical ideas on its head. But you don't sit there thinking, hmm, this is an interesting manifesto upon the female gaze. You sit there thinking, this is a film that is sweeping me up with these powerful emotions, these painterly images, these extraordinary, uh, wonderful, visually sumptuous creations and presenting them all in a package that seems so perfect, so completely in and of itself. If you have access to BFI Player, and if you don't, incidentally, please do sign up to BFI Player. It's a total snip, and it's really worth it. It's a fabulous collection of films, and I do introductions on the BFI Player once a week. Um, I'm not just shilling. I mean, I am shilling, obviously, but I do. if, you, if you're in a territory in which it's, you're able to sign up to BFI Player, do, because it's really good. And I've introduced several Celine CMR films, Girlhood and things over the years, and, and every time I try and describe her movies, I, I just end up going, you know... It's a film by Celine Siamar. You really don't need me to tell you any more about it. She's one of the most brilliant filmmakers working at the moment. And this is proof. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est Milanais. Nous partons là-bas, si le portrait lui plaît. Vous pensez que vous allez y arriver Elle a peintre. Elle a épuisé déjà un peintre avant moi. 
Vous allez devoir la peindre sans qu'elle le sache. Parce qu'elle refuse ce mariage. And so to the top spot, and can it be any surprise at all to know that my favourite film of 2020, the film that caught me most off guard in 2020, the film that impressed me the most in 2020, is of course Rose Glass's brilliant Saint Maud. I first saw Saint Maud just before lockdown began, and I saw it first thing in the morning in a in a screening room in which it was it was just me and I the film was being run for me because I think the distributors thought that I might like it and I might have some positive things to say about it and I didn't know anything about it at all other than it started more with Clark who I absolutely love and we talked about her earlier on and her brilliant roles plural in uh, David Copperfield I sat down to watch St Maud and I watched the film play out and it was first thing in the morning and as I came out I came out of the screening and it just so happened that the distributors were, were sitting around a table as I was walking to the lift. And this often kind of catches me off guard because I, I hate saying things about movies straight after they finish because often you have to let your thoughts settle down. I remember if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll know my recounting of the story of Alan Jones standing up at the end of uh, Godfather Part Three and declaring to the entire cinema that it was an aria of savage beauty. Well, that's something Alan can do. It's not something that I can ever get away with. I, I need time to, for the movies to settle. Anyway, I, I walked out of the film and they were there and I walked I couldn't not say anything at all. And they looked at me and they were very respectful because they didn't want to kind of say, so what did you think? So there was this silence. We both stood there looking at each other and I just said, bloody hell. And I've since seen St. Maud several times. I've seen it uh, on a streaming service and I've seen it in a cinema in which streaming service, because I had to watch the film again and I wanted to, them to send me a thing so I could just watch it again to make sure I was getting some of the credits right. And, um, And again, in a cinema at the plaza in Truro during uh, one of the moments when lockdown wasn't enforced. I introduced it in Truro and I stood up in front of a full socially distanced audience, which of course is about, um, you know, a third of the, of the normal capacity of the cinema. And I love the plaza in Truro. It's one of my favourite cinemas. We usually do 35 millimeter screenings in one of the smaller screens, but this was a digital projection and we did it in the bigger screen so that we could get more people in. It was still, you know, as I said, only about a third of what you could have, but everybody's socially distanced. And I stood up at the beginning of the film and said, look, I think this film is a great piece of work and here are the films it reminds me of. It reminds me of Requiem and it reminds me of Stations of the Cross. And it, it reminds me of all these things, but you know, watch it and then afterwards we'll have a discussion. And of course this is weird as well because I was standing up on stage wearing a mask and wearing a visor. And so I was, you know, uh, I was talking through two layers of stuff and socially distanced from everybody in this great big auditorium in which everybody was able to be safely apart. And I watched the film. I noticed things in that, it must have been the third or fourth screening that I had never noticed before about the colour of uh, Maud's eyes about the way in which the story tells you things through little visual details, about how much I enjoyed the score, about how astonishing the last few frames of the film are, the last few frames of the film that had caused me to react by saying, bloody hell. I've now seen St. Maud, I think five times altogether, and I'm still seeing things in it that I didn't notice first time round. Morvid Clark came on uh, MK3D and, of course, uh, talked to her and Rose Glass about the film. And 
what Morvid Clark said was that she just thinks of it as a very sad story, as a story about loneliness and isolation and a kind of heartfelt plea for, uh, for, for some kind of friendship in an isolated world. And uh, if you're a regular here, you'll know. And incidentally, if you if you haven't checked out MK3D, please do. You go to the BFI uh, channel uh, on uh, YouTube, or actually more directly, go to BFI Player. We've recently moved to a new home on BFI Player. Did I mention BFI Player before? It's absolutely great. Um, but go and have a look at those. They're free to view. Just uh, search MK3D BFI, and you'll find them all. Because um, obviously, throughout uh, 2020, those shows went online, and it's a great show. The one with uh, with Rose Glass and uh, Morvith. Clark. But I think that St. Maud was just the thing that I needed this year. Uh, a movie that was inspiring and thrilling and unexpected and haunting and scary, properly scary, and also moving and touching and tender and sad, really sad. And of course, in a year in which isolation has been such a big part of so many people's lives, I think it really touched a chord, completely accidentally, obviously, because of it being produced long before any of this happened. But it felt like the right time. It felt like the right film for the moment. And it really got under my skin. And it is my favourite film of 2020. Dear God, your presence graces the air. And soon, everyone will see. Hi, you, Maud? Yes, hi. It takes nothing special to mop up after the dying. You're prettier than the last one. But to save a soul, that's quite something. Bless Amanda's body and bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness. When you pray, do you get a response? Oh, it's like he's physically in me. <gasps> So there we go. That's my list of my favourite films released in the UK in 2020. Just to run it down again. At 10, Personal History of David Copperfield. At 9, Wolfwalkers. 8, St Francis. 7, Rocks. 6, Never Really, Sometimes, Always. 5, Clemency. 4, Relic. 3, Parasite. 2, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And at 1, St Maud. Now, I'm sure you have your own list, and I'm sure your list is very different to mine. As I said, this is it's not meant to be definitive. It's just... Uh, it's just my favourite uh, films uh, that have been released in the UK this year. Let me know what yours were. You can get in touch. The best way is through Twitter. You can either tweet me, which is at Kermode Movie, or you can tweet the, the Kermode on Film Twitter account, that is at Kermode on Film. I'd love to hear from you. and Let me know what were the real standouts for you. The next edition of the Kermode on Film podcast is going to include my, my top 10, or should that be bottom 10, least favourite films of 2020. Thanks so much for listening. To everyone who's listened throughout the years, it's been uh, great to have your support and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast if you have all the usual messages tell your friends visit our Patreon page um, keep watching the skies which is, somebody said to me why do you say that I said it's a film thing um, which it is uh, anyway thanks so much for listening stay safe now more than always and uh, tune in for the next Kermode on Film podcast my least favourite films of 2020. If only Donald Trump was a film.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.